I'd like to invite you to join me in reading this evening Jeremiah chapter 28. Not the whole chapter, but if you could turn to Jeremiah chapter 28. As we read through this book of Jeremiah, we find so many fascinating small stories and big stories and it's amazing what these prophets went through back in the Old Testament times. And it's not too much different than what a lot of pastors go through today. The burden that these prophets had for their people, yet the people seemed to just not want to listen from time to time. But in Jeremiah chapter 28, and if I could have you stand as we read these first few verses from the Word of God, and I'm just going to read the passage, and you can just follow along uh, as, I, as I read out loud. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah, in the fourth year, and in the fifth month, that Hananiah the son of Azor, the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, excuse me, of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests, and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord, even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words, which thou hast prophesied, to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house, and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to preach your word. I do not take this lightly. Preaching your word is, if not the most important thing that someone can do. There are many honorable occupations, many of which I would honor myself. But when it comes to presenting the gospel, potentially preaching and having somebody hear the message and be saved for all of eternity, there's no greater joy. Or perhaps there's somebody in this room tonight who is saved and know, knows you as their Lord and Savior, but maybe isn't where they should be. Perhaps you could open our hearts to where we may need to hear today. Thank you, God, for this day. Be with me now as I preach. In your name, amen. You may be seated. To tell a lie is one thing, but to convince yourself that that lie is truth is a much deeper lie. Perhaps you've heard the name Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, a former seven-time winner of the Tour de France, was constantly harassed and accused of taking performance-enhancing drugs throughout his, his career. And for years, he denied these claims as he continued to win year 
after year. He even made a commercial with Nike, his sponsor, in rebuttal to more accusations of his use of drugs. In this commercial that he, Armstrong made with Nike, this is a quote. This is what he said in this commercial. This is my body, and I can do whatever I want to it. I can push it, study it, tweak it, listen to it. Everybody wants to know what I'm on. What am I on? I'm on my bike. Six hours a day. What are you on? It's supposed to be a commercial to, to make people think and make people want to get on their bike and go push and do something. Nike slogan, just do it. It's supposed to encourage people. And I, I believe it did for a time. But most of us know the story of Lance Armstrong. We know in 2012, an investigation was done and concluded that Armstrong was indeed using performance-enhancing drugs for the majority of his career. And one person named him as the ringleader of the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. Armstrong chose not to contest the charges, citing the potential toll on his family. As a result, he was stripped of all his achievements from August 1998 onward, including his seven Tour de France titles. He also received a lifetime ban from all sports that follow the World Anti-Doping Code, which ended his competitive career. If you delve into this story a bit more, you find it's more than just a person lying. A year or so after this whole event happened, Armstrong agreed to an interview with Oprah. Armstrong gave some startling answers to some of his wrongdoings. One question was asked, how important was winning to you and would you do anything to win at all costs? His reply, it was always win at all costs. When I was diagnosed with cancer many years ago, I would have done anything to survive. So I took that attitude, win at all costs, to cycling and to anything else I endeavored. I was taking drugs before that. But I wasn't bullying people. Another question was asked, so to keep on winning, it meant you had to keep taking the banned substances to do it. Are you saying that that was a common thing? His answer was yes. And I'm not sure that this is an acceptable answer. But to ask me if I was taking illegal drugs is like asking me, do I have air in my tire? Or do I have water in our bottles? That was my view, and this, that was part of the job is how I saw it, was taking these drugs. Another question was asked, when you look at that, do you feel embarrassed? Do you feel shame? Do you feel humble? Tell me, how do you feel right now? His response was, this is the second time in my life when I, can't, when I could not control the outcome. The first was when I had my disease of cancer. The scary thing is winning seven Tour de France's, I knew I was going to win. I knew it. The question was asked, so is there happiness in winning if you knew you were going to win despite taking illegal drugs? His, was, his reply was, there's more happiness in the process, in the build, in the preparation. The winning was just a given. Was it a big deal to you? Did it feel wrong to you to lie for all these years? His reply was, 
No. Did it even feel wrong at all, just a, a little bit? His reply, even scarier, no. How about now? Do you feel bad? His reply, no. Did you feel in any way that you were cheating? You did not feel, did, did you not feel that you were cheating and you were taking these drugs? How did, did you not feel you were cheating? His reply, at the time, no. I kept hearing, I'm, on a, I'm, a, I'm a drug cheat. I'm a cheat. I'm a cheater. I went in and, and looked up the definition of cheat. And the definition of cheat is to gain an advantage on a rival or foe that they don't have. He said, but I convinced myself that that wasn't the case. I convinced myself that I was taking these drugs to level the playing field. But you're Lance Armstrong, she says. You're one of the best cyclists in the world. How could you be leveling the playing field? His reply, now looking at it in hindsight, I see my faults. I know it a thousand times more now, but I didn't feel like that was the case while I was racing. He goes on to say, I know there are people who believed in me and supported me and that they have every right to feel betrayed and it's my fault and I'll spend the rest of my life trying to earn back trust and apologize to people. But to answer your question, if I could go back and change my life, would I or would I not take those drugs? He says, I probably would have done it again. <laughs> now we can look at that and say, wow, that guy's crazy. <laughs> He's crazy. Now, this, this was just, a, very, this was just a, a, a part of the interview. This whole thing was much longer. And he delves a little bit more into his life. And I'm not even trying to make him sound worse than what he was. This is direct quotes. But the, the point all I'm trying to make is that people can believe a lie. And it's the scariest type of lie is when it's a lie you created yourself, and then you start to believe that lie. In this passage in Jeremiah, something similar happens. We find something unfortunate to this prophet, Hananiah. But this story actually begins back in chapter 27. And we're not going to read that. I'm just going to tell you exactly what happens. You see, in chapter 27 in verse 1, Jeremiah starts out by saying, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes and put them upon thy neck and send them to the king of Edom and to the king of Moab and to the king of the Ammonites and to the king of Tyrus and to the king of Zidon. And he lists all these kings. You go down to verse 5. I have made, this is the message he was to give unto them. I have made the earth, the man and the beasts that are upon the ground. By my great power and my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. If you go down to verse 9, Therefore, excuse me, verse 8, And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord. Verse 9, therefore hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak 
unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie. Now when you read chapter 28, something fishy is going on here. So what happens here is Jeremiah gets a vision or a dream from the Lord, very specific, and the vision says, Jeremiah, tell the nations, tell Israel and the surrounding nations that to not fight Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Don't fight him because I have given him power over the land right now. Should you go against him, you will fail. And to make his claim even more dramatic, just, uh, not Josiah, Jeremiah puts a yoke over his head and gives a yoke to all his five messengers and sends them out to the king. And I think, do we have a picture of that yoke? Just in case you're not familiar with it. This probably wasn't the very same one that Jeremiah used, but this is something similar. A yoke, this, uh, this metal part here, or it's actually this one's wood, would go over the head of, the, of, the ox, of an ox, and those rings on the side would be tied to either the farmer itself or to, uh, to uh, I, I guess, something to steer. I don't know the terminology, but they would use that, and the ox would go inside, and they would use this to plow. This was kind of a way, like a bridle in a sense, that they would use back then. And Jeremiah was wearing this thing around his head, and he got one for each of his messengers as a sign that you are yoked, you are in bondage. And don't get out of it. You did this to yourself. You sinned, you messed up, you have to pay the price, so don't fight it. And then he goes on to say, if a prophet tells you otherwise, don't believe them, they're lying. Well, seems pretty straightforward. And this is Jeremiah the prophet we're talking about. So, of course, we would believe him, right? Now we go to chapter 28, and we find this guy named Hananiah. I don't know how much time has transpired between that message that Jeremiah gave and the story here now in chapter 28. I'm not sure. But we know that in verse 1, a, a guy named Hananiah, who was the son of a prophet, stands before Jeremiah and says in verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring it into this place. Now, in chapter 27, Jeremiah says the, the duration of this will last upwards of 70 years. And this guy's saying two years. Hmm, who's right? Who wants to vote right now? Who says Jeremiah? I don't think we need to vote right now. So we see here a prophecy is given to us in chapter 27. But here in these first four verses, we have a challenge that's given. This challenge, in verse 4, I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. So clearly, this prophet, he says, Jeremiah, this yoke that you have upon you will be broken in two years. Now, there's a bunch of people around, they're listening, they're thinking, okay, I wonder who's right now. And then Jeremiah gives a very interesting response in verse 5. Right, I should say it starts really in verse 6, his response. His first word, what's his first word? Response. Can you see it? It says, even the prophet Jeremiah said, what is it? Amen. That's how he starts. Amen. The Lord do so, the Lord perform thy words, which thou hast prophesied, to bring again the vessel of the Lord's house. So Jeremiah, knowing his own prophecy, knowing that this guy is probably not telling the truth, still in his heart, probably hoping that, that maybe God could override his prophecy. Jeremiah, no doubt wanting this to be true, says, Amen, the Lord do so as thou hast prophesied. But look in verse 7. 
He adds, nevertheless, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. The prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesieth of peace when the word of the prophet shall come to pass. Then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. Jeremiah's response was, many prophets of old have prophesied against the country. But a prophet that prophesies peace to a country, only time will tell if what you're saying is true. Jeremiah is saying, I hope what you're saying is right, but... I hope you're not lying, because time will tell if what you're saying is true or not. I feel like Jeremiah is almost giving him a, a way out, you know, for the, way the, for, the, for the prophet to say, well, maybe it's not quite like that, and maybe to kind of mellow it down. But this prophet stands true. He stands to what he says. So we have a prophecy given in chapter 27. We have this challenge made. Jeremiah gives this response, but now in verse 10, this prophet gives an assurance of his prophecy. Look in verse 10. With confidence, then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and break it. I don't know how strong this guy was. I don't know if he was just using a toy yoke around his head. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how long Jeremiah has been wearing this yoke around him. He could be carrying it around him for many weeks, months, years. I don't really know. Prophets did some strange things back then. And Hananiah says, Jeremiah, let me rest assure you. And he walks over to Jeremiah. He takes the yoke from off him and he breaks it. No turning back now, Hananiah. Verse 11. And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Wow. Now, I don't know if you're getting what's happening here, but this is a bold statement made here. Hananiah is, in one case, risking his life right now by stepping out and saying, Jeremiah, God came to me after he came to you and said, not, not 70 years, but in two years, this nation will have peace. In two years. And he takes the yoke off. He breaks it in front of the people and says, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, what I'm saying is coming from God. Jeremiah, knowing what God told him before, but seeing the confidence in this man, decides to just say nothing and leave. Which, by the way, sometimes is the best thing to do. Say nothing and just walk away. Sometimes there's wisdom in that. To just letting things transpire. Especially when you're unsure of what to do in a circumstance. Jeremiah decides, you know what, maybe there's no, there's no point in talking through this. There's no point in arguing. I'm just going to leave and let God deal with this. So Jeremiah leaves. But this is where it gets interesting, if it wasn't already interesting. Verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet. I don't know if this was just on the way home, if this was immediately or uh, days down the, uh, down, the, down the road. I don't know. But he came to Jeremiah the prophet after the Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go 
and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have given him the beast of the field also. Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah, The prophet, hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust a lie. I'd be scared if I were Hananiah. And my first, as I, after I think this, if I, after I read this passage, I think to myself, why would he lie? Why would he make this up? Why would he make this up in front of Jeremiah? I mean, this is Jeremiah the prophet we're talking about. Now, it's possible that, and we know from reading the scriptures, people didn't have a high respect for prophets back then. Some did. Some did highly. But Jeremiah wasn't treated the greatest. Uh, many of these prophets weren't treated the greatest, especially the ones that walked up to a king and said, you're going to be in bondage for 70 years. Probably people didn't like him too much. So people, so it's, prob- it's possible that he didn't have the respect he deserved. Us today, thousands of years later, man, if we could meet Jeremiah now, we'd shake his hand, we'd, you know, we'd serve him the best food that we could, we'd have the best Filipino banquet we could ever make for him, we'd have all the rice he could ever eat. I mean, it would be fantastic. We, we would treat him like a king, because it's Jeremiah we're talking about. But in the moment, Jeremiah probably wasn't that popular. It's possible that this guy Hananiah didn't realize the outcome of what would happen, because the outcome wasn't that great for him. But he lied. And he would pay the price for that. This verse in chapter 18 of Jeremiah, excuse me, not chapter 18, but back in chapter 17 and verse 18, we see a possible consequence of what could happen if this were to take place. But to shorten things up for us this evening, it would seem as if Hananiah had convinced himself that what he was saying was true. It's possible that he had prayed and he really wanted God to, to, to help his land. It's possible that he really wanted God to, to heal his people. He didn't want to die in bondage, no matter how... Uh, to, this guy might have been in his early 20s or 30s, I don't know how old he was. But 70 years from now, it's chances are he's not going to make it through. And perhaps he got on his knees and he began to ask God and pray. And maybe, and he, maybe in his mind he was convinced that God was going to make this happen. I don't really know what was going through his head. But have you ever heard of selective hearing before? (laughs) Parents are like, oh yeah, I got kids. I know all about that. Selective hearing. Or maybe wives are like, yeah, I have a husband. I know all about selective hearing. Son, clean your room. Then you can play video games. And then the mom comes back in the room two minutes later, and the son's playing video games in his messy room. Says... Didn't I say clean your room first, then play video games? The son may say, oh, I thought you said I could just play video games. Like, oh, you missed the first half, did you? Okay, so you don't, you don't want to get punished now because you didn't hear what I said or you just chose not to hear what I said? Maybe uh, an officer comes up and says, um, uh, sir, your son was arrested today. He was in a, driving a Prius going over 100 miles an hour on the uh, highway. He was in the possession of marijuana and prescription drugs. And the dad says, wow, a Prius can go 100 miles an hour? That's impressive. 
Nafra just said, yeah, you missed the first part, <laughs> the most important part. Uh, your son is not doing well. Selective hearing sometimes is, uh, is a problem, it's trouble. And I fear that Christians sometimes can struggle from selective hearing. When it comes to a message, pastor's preaching hard, you're getting convicted, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's really convicting. Let me just hear half of that. <laughs> the half that, apply, that, that doesn't really uh, guilt me too much. Sometimes we can hear something while not really paying attention to what's going on in the circumstance. If this happens, we can go on believing something that was never true in the first place. And if it's not corrected, it can, we can live believing this lie for a very, very long time. There's an extreme illustration here of an old plantation owner back in the 1800s. His name was James Hammond, plantation owner. He was uh, an owner of slaves. He was a congressman and a governor during the years of the United States in the 1800s. Now, this man specifically, he made, uh, in 1839, he purchased an 18-year-old slave named Sally and her child, uh, Louisa. He made Sally his concubine and had many children by her. Then when Sally's daughter, Louisa, turned 12, he also made her his concubine. And I'm just going to, I'm not going to be, I'm just genericizing this because it's a, it's a very interesting story. But not content with his sexual abuse with some of his slave girls, he continued to do so on people much closer to him. And he began to live this secret life. And when his wife found out about what he was doing to some of these slave girls at night, she obviously immediately left him. She couldn't stand around someone like that. And even in Congress, he lost his position for a time. And after somebody finally came out and out in the open and accused him of what had happened and Authorities were able to discover that this man, what he was doing to some of these girls at night. This was his reply. It crushes me to the earth to see everything of mine so blasted around me. Servants, cattle, mules, hogs, everything that has life around me seems to labor under some faded um, maliciousness against me. Great God, what have I done? Never was a man so cursed. What have I done or omitted to deserve this fate? No one, no one exercises the slight indulgence to me. Nothing is overlooked. Nothing is forgiven. His reply was, what have I done wrong? <laughs> we would look at him and say, he's crazy. You know, put him in an insane asylum. You don't know what you did wrong? It's interesting. Now, I, obviously, this is an extreme case, but on a much milder case, we as Christians sometimes can convince ourselves of something that we a lie that we've told ourselves and convince ourselves that it's it's true it's okay and many christians we go through life believing lies that sometimes the devil slips into us but sometimes these are ones that we create within ourselves one such lie that christians could believe is i'm okay i'm okay i'm i'm doing okay now, we don't like to dig around inside and examine what's going on in our life sometimes. We don't like to dig deep and have God search the inner parts of our hearts and know what's going on. When I was growing up, we had a house, and uh, in our house, we had termites that liked to feast on one part of the wall. Of course, it was my room. And they would go through, and every once in a while, you know, we'd uh, uh, literally, like, up some of the ceiling would kind of just fall through. So we'd patch it up, you know. And, uh, and some more come and we'd patch it up. And we knew it was termites, but um, we didn't feel like dealing with the problem. We just want to deal with it later. So 
we uh, kept patching it up. Now, we knew there was something going on on the wall, but you know how much it costs to rip down, and it was an exterior wall too, so to take out that wall, it's a big deal. It's not a small thing. Well, one day the roof just said, you know what, I'm done. And the roof just came down. Luckily, I wasn't in the room. And when it came down, that's when we discovered that the beams, that, you know, the important beams, the big ones, they were supposed to, they weren't there anymore. <laughs> Termites ate through it all. And then our, we, uh, our handyman came over and he began to rip out the exterior wall. And he says, wow, there's no studs in this wall. And as soon as he started tapping on the sheetrock, the wall just fell down. And he thought, that's probably not supposed to happen. And he began to, we had to complete, and it, it took, it was such a big problem to fix. But had we done it five or six years ago when the problem started, it would have just been a small problem. We could have got some spray in there, killed some termites, maybe uh, uh, fixed a beam or two, and then we would have been fine. But now we had to fix the entire room and the whole exterior wall. It was gone. Nobody likes when there's a big problem going on, especially if it's related to you. You don't want to open it up. You'd be, you'd be crazy if you wanted to. But there are times when it's necessary that we say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Christians can lie to themselves and say, I'm okay. Here's another lie Christians may tell themselves and believe. No one will find out. I don't really need to park on this one too long. I don't, no one will ever find out. If you're ever looking for justification to do something dumb, this is usually where we start. No one's going to find out. Teenagers probably said that before. Oh, it's fine. No, no one's going to find out. It's going to be okay. I've said that before. True, there might be a thousand variations to this, this phrase, but it almost always comes back to the same thing. Private browsing on the internet, personal devices, uh, even when it comes to smaller things, no one's going to find out, yet we forget that uh, you can't hide anything from God. And yes, you can live your life hiding it from a spouse, from a friend, you can live your life, but the ultimate person that you're lying to is the one person that's going to expose you someday when you get to heaven. And that's God. No one will ever find out. Here's another lie we tell ourselves. No one will get hurt. No one will get hurt. Even though deep down we know that's not true, we convince ourselves that it, it might be. You could almost connect this to the last one. No one will ever find out. Because once somebody finds out, all, hurt always comes afterwards. If it's behind closed doors, if it's between two people, Somebody is always going to get hurt. And we forget that we're hurting the most important person of all, the, the creator that can see everything we're doing. Every time we do it, we're hurting God. Whatever it could be, small or big, God felt major pain of raging sin before the flood came. The, rebellious grieved, uh, the rebellion grieved the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 63. Jesus longed to gather his people to him when they refused to accept him in Matthew 23. God knows and sees all and is constantly grieved when we think we're getting away with it. Here's another lie we tell ourselves. That's just the way I am. No, I can't really do anything about it. That's just who I am. Could be an excuse that couples use, too, in a marriage. Well, you know, that's just who we are. <laughs> you know, we're just not that kind of person. 
This is often the easiest way of dealing out a destructive pattern in our lives. Simply just to accept or uh, to make it an acceptable or unchangeable part of who we are. Whether we see it as a part of our nature or simply as something we just can't fix. We lie to ourselves and say, well, that's just who I am. Do you know who you are, actually? You were created in the image of God. That's who you are. If you're saved tonight, you're a child of God. That's who you are. You, you answer to God. You weren't just a nobody. When you give your life to God, you are somebody. You are special to God. And maybe you, you don't think you have the ability that other people have. You aren't, you, that, this excuse does not work. This lie that you can tell yourself that that's just who I am, that doesn't work anymore because you aren't who you are. But you now have the power, you have the ability to tap into the power of God on your life to become anything that God wants you to be. So this excuse is invalid. It doesn't work. And I'm thankful, even though we oftentimes come to God and we are broken and we aren't maybe what we could be, maybe because we've sinned in the past, but God specializes in broken things. He specializes in patching up things that we think are useful. God sees, he takes trash and turns it into treasure. This excuse doesn't work. Here's another big excuse. Oh, uh, I, can, I can do that tomorrow. Now, this one you could use for any instance, right? Homework. Homework. <laughs> Homework, right? I can keep going. I can do that tomorrow. Now, when it comes to Bible study, I can't read my Bible. I'll read two chapters tomorrow. Catch up. And now you're looking at yourself going, I need to read like 85 chapters now to catch up. Because you keep saying, tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Man, that was a good message on prayer, Pastor. Tomorrow I'll start. Do it tomorrow. And then the week, two weeks later, Pastor preaches a similar message. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was a good one. Yeah, tomorrow for sure I will start. I got a lot going on tonight. I'm tired. I already heard a great message. I don't need to do it tonight. Tomorrow, I'll start. God's still waiting for that promise to come through. Tomorrow is when we'll get honest with God. But the truth is, many times, tomorrow never comes. Even in the midst of how miserable some of our bad, lives, our bad life choices make us, we, don't, we just don't like to make the changes now. We'd rather make them tomorrow. David says in Psalms 95, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if we will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Telling yourself that you'll make a change tomorrow certainly may make you feel better about your failures today, but it won't make a difference at all. So you can say, oh Lord, I'm going to do that. That's good. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Now you feel better because I'm going to do it tomorrow for sure. It never happens. How about this lie? I'm not qualified. I can't do that. I'm not qualified. There is this notion that only those who are in full-time ministry or go to church or on church staff, those are the ones that are qualified by God. But we forget that those people at one time weren't qualified, so to speak. Those people at one time were, were where you were in the pew. And those people at one time were just normal average people that heard a message that somebody says, come forward and give your life to God. And they probably said the same thing. Well, I'm not qualified. But if that's what God's wanting me to do, I guess I'll do it. And they came forward despite what was against them and they gave their life to God. And now today they're serving full time. I'm not qualified. That one doesn't work either. 
1 Corinthians 1.26 tells us that God doesn't just use those that we deem qualified. Do you want to know who God uses? For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the what? The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God's saying, I can't find many wise men, many mighty, many noble that want to be used of me. But God says, it doesn't matter because I want to use even the foolish people of the world to confound the wise. I love that verse. <laughs> I never considered myself wise or mighty or noble. Foolish? I think we all could fit that category at least at one point in our life. We all could feel good at saying, yeah, well, I, I'm not... Not the best. God says, good, I'll use you. Because I can turn anybody into a somebody. So saying I'm not qualified doesn't work either. But this is probably the biggest lie and the last lie we'll talk about that any person could ever make. This lie that says, I'm saved. I am saved. Now, it's not my intention tonight to make you doubt your salvation. If you accepted Christ as your Savior, you're on your way to heaven and there's nothing that can change that. God, you are forever in his hand and nothing can take you out. But there are some people who come to church often. There are some people who even read their Bible sometimes and, and pray. And maybe you've even asked God to confess some of their sins before. And, and they're leaning on those things that they've done. And they think now that they're okay with God and that, and, and that they're, they're saved. They think now that they're a Christian and that they live their life based on these few things that they've done when in fact they've never really truly accepted Christ as their Savior in the first place. And now you've been playing the game for so long, all your friends are around now, or those people that you know in church, and man, if you were to come out now and admit, I don't think I ever got saved in the first place, they're going to make fun of me. They're going to think I'm this and that. They're not going to respect me anymore. They're going to take back all the things they said about me earlier, and I'm not going to be who I am. It's too late now. It's never too late to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You see, when somebody gets saved, the Bible says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Someone that's saved shows evidence of salvation. They show that they want to be. Now, you can fake it all you want. You can come to church and you can go soul winning and you can play the part and wear a tie and even learn to iron your shoes and polish, or iron your shirt and polish. You could, you could iron your shoes if you want. Uh, I don't recommend it. Iron your shirt, polish your shoes. You can look good. You can look the part. Imagine if I were to interview all the people closest to you. Your friends, your spouse, maybe your children, your parents, your coworkers. If I could interview the people around you and ask them to tell me about you. So not ask you about you because you'll always give an answer that I want to hear. But to ask everyone else around you about you, what do you think they'd say? What would they say? Because your coworkers would know if you, how you act at work. Church people would know how you act at church. Kids would know how you act at home. Spouses would know who you really are. What would they say? Now imagine if I could ask you or pull you aside and then look up to heaven and say, God, tell me about this person. Well, you're not, 
You're not getting anywhere now. He knows everything. If God, what if I could come before the throne of God and ask him what you are like? What's he or she like, Lord? What are their thoughts? What are your thoughts about them? Their actions, their motives, their, their thought life, their love for you. What are they really like? What do you think God would say? What would the two reports look like? What would your friends say? And what would God say? Because you might be able to fool your friends. You might be able to fool your kids, your spouse. You might even be able to fool your coworkers. You might be able to fool your best friend. You might be able to pull that off. But would the, would you, the report from your family be the same report that God would give of you, of your life? What would he say? What would your friends and family and coworkers say about you? Would they, be, would they give you something higher than what God would say? Is it possible that you've been far more concerned about your reputation than you are about your character? You're too concerned about what people perceive of you than what the King of Kings and Lord of Lords knows about you? What if I were to sit down and ask you who you are? Tell me about yourself. What would your report look like from what God sees? How honest would you be? Or have you been living this lie for so long you can't remember who you are anymore? And maybe you are saved, you're a Christian. But the life you're living just isn't really what God knows it to be. You've been playing this game for so long, everyone else thinks you're doing fine, but deep down you know, and God knows. Have you created a crafty, futile, foolish, self-identifying form to fool everyone around you and who you really are? If so, why? Why? Why have we lied to ourselves for so long? There is such a silliness to faking it when it's something so big on the line. Now, if we go back to salvation, maybe, maybe some of us here have been just playing the Christian game. We've been pretending this whole time, pretending to, to play the part, to come to church and do this and do that. And, and you're good people, but being good isn't good enough. Why would you fake something like this? Fake being a child of the king. What happens if you die? And you stand before God. And God looks at you and says, you're not one of my children. And you say, but everybody on earth thinks I am. And that's what matters. I fooled everybody else on earth. <laughs> and God says, well, you've fooled them for 70 years, but now for eternity, you lost. Is it worth that? It's silly to try to fool yourself and everyone else about who you are. Because God already knows who you are. The challenge tonight is this, search yourself. Is there any lying going on? Have you, been, have you convinced yourself you're doing okay? Or convince yourself you can't do something? Convince yourself that you are limited, maybe by your age or by your, uh, by your gender. I don't know what it could be. God, there is no limits to God. It doesn't matter who you are or what your past is. God can use you. But what lies have you convinced yourself to be in? Because I'll tell you it didn't end well for this prophet. Because in verse 16, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee off from the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hanani the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. I'm not saying God's going to end your life. This is not a scare tactic. I just want you to think. Think about your life. Think about where you are. Think about, have I been lying to myself? Convincing myself I'm okay. 
Do I come to church just enough to make myself feel good? Where is my love for God tonight? As we think these thoughts, I'd like to ask if you can bow your heads and close your eyes with me as I talk to the Lord. And we'll have an invitation time in just a second.